Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hey, Liz. Hey, Beth. Welcome back from vacation. Thank you. We took a break last week, and my family and I went down to New Orleans. It was my first time. And coincidentally, our guest today is from New Orleans, Brett... Uh, pronounced Barricay. Brett Barricay. I had to pause because... Yeah, in St. Louis, we don't know how to pronounce French words. <laughs> Brett, you may have learned this already. Yes. Uh, for what it's worth, some people in South Louisiana don't know how to say that name, so don't feel bad. <laughs> I, st- I still feel bad because you've been working here now for several months. <laughs> Maybe not a year. Six no, months? No, it'll be six months, uh, six months at the beginning of April. That's right. And your title here is... Assistant Metro Editor for Public Safety and Breaking News. The long title for it basically title. he oversees um, the reporters who cover police and crime and courts in the St. Louis area. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're the crime and punishment people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of breaking news. I feel like whenever we're chatting, it's because there's something developing or something cooking out there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we do a lot of breaking news and a lot of reporters going out, particularly in the last few weeks as the weather started to stabilize and warm up, uh, reporters going out to scenes. So. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, obviously. Yeah. As the weather warms up, typically in St. Louis, you have the cycle of cool weather, not as much crime, cold mm-hmm. weather, very little crime. And then in the summer, warmer weather, people hitting the streets, people having fun, some people having too much fun, getting into <laughs> fights. I think that's the biggest downside, honestly, to daylight savings is that it being lighter later means that, you know, there's more happening later. This is true, and unfortunately, this is true in a lot of places. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a great segue. So, obviously, we mentioned that you've been at The Post for about six months. Yes. Uh, But tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were before and, you know, the beginning of your career that brought you here. Sure. Uh, I have been in the news business, I'm probably off by a little bit here, but about 28, 29 years. Uh, I started my... Started my professional career in a small town in southwest Louisiana, Opelousas, Louisiana. And uh, from there, I've lived in Louisiana, Florida, Louisiana again, Kentucky, (laughs) Texas. I spent a short stint in Atlanta working for an organization called Law 360. Before that, I spent three years as an investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, the simple answer as to what I did there was I wrote about neo-Nazis and militia members and white supremacists. Wow. Uh, it was it was an experience. <laughs> yeah, intense, I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully, you won't have to write too much about those here or oversee the coverage of too many of those here. Yeah, we, we haven't had a lot of issues here since I've been here. So. Yeah, so that seems like the majority of your career and life perhaps has been spent in the South. Um, yes. And now you're kind of in the, the middle South. <laughs> well, I was about to say that raises an interesting question. I think a lot of people think of St. Louis as either a northern city or a southern city, and it's kind of a, a debate, which one is St. Louis? Do you, since you've been here for about for several months now, do you know which one you would consider St. Louis to be? Not yet, because it's got some elements of both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does remind me a little bit of when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, where parts of the city were very definitely southern, mm-hmm. and parts of it were very distinctly Midwest. Yeah. And I see that combination here. And how would you kind of define that difference? The easiest way for me to, to, to tell what part of the city I'm in, if it's more southern or midwestern, is the architecture. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the big, solid red brick buildings that look very Midwestern. And then you've got the wooden houses, which you kind of need in the South. Because if you build a brick house in, say, 
New Orleans, yeah. you're going to die in the summer because it's just going to be so hot. Uh, and you drive around St. Louis and you see a mix of the two. And it, it's that kind of tells me, okay, this part of town has this this feel to it. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting reason for some of the brick houses, especially in the older architecture. I, this is where I display my history dork side. But <laughs> after the um, 1849 fire. The city said buildings had to be built in a more fireproof fashion, so there were far more brick buildings being built at that time because of the fire. So that's... I'm, I'm sure I got that year wrong, actually, now that I think about it. I think it was 1849. No, that I didn't know that. That's so interesting. Um, I've often heard St. Louis described as, and kind of uh, a little bit of a different take, I guess, but maybe there's overlap, as more of an East Coast city because of the age of the city, the architecture of the city, um, you know, just kind of more of the history of the city. Whereas uh, folks in Kansas City and being there, I can see the comparison. It's often described as more of a Western city, like having more in common with a Denver than it does St. Lewis in terms of its age, and that obviously affects its history and architecture, uh, and just the general vibe and city planning. Uh, I think of Kansas City as definitely a more Western city. When I lived closer to Kansas City, it wasn't unusual to see people wearing cowboy hats, mm-hmm. and it wasn't out of place as it would be in St. Louis. You don't wear, <laughs> <laughs> no one wears cowboy hats. We actually asked you here not to quiz you on Southern City. <laughs> Geography. <laughs> But because, um, as we've talked to some of the reporters, uh, we've gotten a couple of questions from people who wonder a little bit more about kind of how we put together the news. And um, I know crime is often something that we get a lot of questions about. I'm not quite sure what to ask you first about that process. (laughs) Um, Could you talk a little bit about what types of crime we routinely cover uh, at the paper? Sure. on the, I mentioned going to scenes. That's usually the police side of things. Uh, we try, we have, because we do not have 60 people to throw at things. I have six reporters on mm-hmm. my team. We kind of be selective of what scenes we go to, and it's almost always a homicide, unfortunately. Uh, and the ones that will really get our attention are mul- when multiple people are killed or if children are injured or killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of going to the scene is obviously we want to be able to see the neighborhood, talk to the neighbors if we can. The police generally don't tell us a lot of the scene, but we can see, okay, there's evidence markers everywhere. You know, we, we had one not long ago where there were more than 20 evidence markers on the ground. And those are usually indicating what on the ground? In this in the case, case I'm referring to, it was bullets. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew whoever, whoever did it shot a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, little things like that, we'll, we'll try and incorporate into a story. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll try. We try to go to homicide scenes when we can. Talk to neighbors, talk to family if we can. Mm-hmm. The idea is to we can spit out short descriptions of crimes all day and numbers all day about number of people killed. It, after a while, it's just another number. If we can put a face, a name, a mm-hmm. story to these people, it makes it more human. It makes you makes makes the story relatable it, it's you might might see something in this person or this person's story that you identify with and a good newspaper tells the story of its city and part of what we're doing is it's an unfortunate part of every big city but we're telling the story of the people who for whatever reason have come into contact with the criminal justice system as a victim as someone who was charged uh, with the homicide scenes, we're trying to put faces and names to people who are killed. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's easy to write them off as numbers. It's you, you can listen to talk radio all day and hear, you know, hear about faceless criminals and, and faceless victims. They shouldn't be faceless. They're people. They live here. They're part of the city's story, and that's part of the story we're trying to tell. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's so important. And I'm guessing, again, you know, having gone over uh, or made you go over your resume earlier, (laughs) you know, this is an experience that, to your point, um, should exist in communities across the country. Yes. Uh, I've I've been working variations on this public safety beat for 26 years. Yeah. Kind of got into it by accident. But when it happened, I knew knew it was something I could do and something I I wanted to do. yeah, uh, part of it is ma- making taking taking what's happening around you and making it. I don't want to say real, but you know, make putting those names and faces to these incidents because yeah. we we do get a lot of a lot of arrests, a lot of crime. Most big cities do. I grew up in New Orleans, which for a few years was the murder capital of the world. Yeah. Uh, we had more than four hundred eighty murders one year when I was a teenager. Um, you see those numbers, and after a while, they don't mean anything. But if you see the name, the age, you hear the family talk about this person, how he was a high school basketball player or had NFL dreams or mm-hmm. whatever this backstory is, that's a real person. Yeah. And that person's part of this city and part of this city's story. And that's, that's the chapter of the city's story we're trying to tell. Part of our responsibility and... It's one I've taken seriously for, I've been doing this for 26 years, so obviously I've taken it seriously 26 years of telling stories of victims, of some of the more interesting stories I've told are the people who have been arrested, people who have been convicted. Uh, over the years, I've interviewed everyone from somebody wrongfully convicted to somebody sitting on death row. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I had what amounted to a six-month-long, when I lived and worked in Kentucky, I had what amounted to a six-month-long conversation of somebody with the last six months of his life. He was being executed. And he was trying to be executed. He volunteered for it. And we talked about his crime, his life, why he was making this request. All of that helped put a face on, you can hear about an execution. To hear from somebody who is actively trying to get there is a whole different story. Definitely, yeah. And it impacts listeners and readers in a whole different way than just the state executed so-and-so last night. Right. And, you know, the community stories could be anything from the kid who, the one we had recently of uh, Jaden Bird, 19-year-old, former high school basketball player. We don't know exactly what led up to his death, other than he was shot mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but we looked at his life and... The family said some of the things you would expect, that he was a good kid, but they also pointed to some things that were like, he wasn't perfect, but nobody is. Right. But, you know, it also makes the point of he wasn't perfect, but did he deserve that? Right, yeah. And And that's every parent's nightmare. It is. And, you know, (laughs) hearing that story hopefully can, can get through to parents to see that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, you know, what he was involved in for better or worse. Everyone, you know, is Mm -hmm. uh, no one is perfect and that no child, you know, deserves uh, to have their life cut short like that. But also to tell that story, you had to have a reporter go and talk to this family. Yes. I think it was only a day or two pretty soon after finding out, right. About the, the horrific murder of their child. 
What is that process like for you as an editor? And then when you were a reporter, what was that like? As an editor, it's, I say I have a limited number of reporters, so we have to kind of pick our spots where we make these approaches to families. Right. Uh, we try our best to reach out to as many as we can, and some just do not want to talk, which I understand completely. But we also try and pick out the best reporter to approach that family. Who has the you know that that touch with family? Who has that ability to approach approach that family in a way that maybe makes them want to talk, if not immediately, then down the line. Mm-hmm. And we try and find the best person to approach that family. And we talk beforehand about, okay, what do we want to know? How do we talk, you know, how do we talk about what happened? Mm-hmm. How do we get past what you see a lot of, oh, he was a great kid. Well, what made him, a, getting to what made him a great kid and, you know, sensitive, being sensitive to their situation. How do we get at, did he have any issues? Did he, was he involved with anything? Were there any indications something might have gone wrong? And a lot of times there's not. Sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, unfortunately. Uh, but there are families who will talk about their 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 kids or their parents' issues when this happens. Mm-hmm. Picking out the right reporter is a big part of it. As a reporter, making that approach, it is one of the scariest things I've had to do. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've kind of resolved myself as the worst they can do is slam the door in my face and tell me no. Or some colorful variation of no. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which, as you said, is... is- something that we try to respect yes when they do that right yeah we, we don't continue to badger families that make it clear they don't want to talk right uh at most we will do is leave a business card with them saying if you ever change your mind here i am mm-hmm. you know we're we're, we're here we're, we're willing to tell these stories um it but it's scary approaching them because you're walking into the lowest moment in someone's life mm-hmm. and it's not really something you look forward to doing but it's part of which it, as a reporter and an editor wanting to tell these stories is something you have to do. Because mm-hmm. like I said, th- these stories are part of the, s- of the story of the city we live in. Mm-hmm. And you try and come up with questions. Um, a lot of times we'll pair a reporter and photographer together if the family is willing to be photographed. And we try to be sensitive of they don't want, this person doesn't want their picture taken or this person doesn't want to talk. Mm-hmm. We, we do our best to respect that. But also, it's just you, you have to prepare yourself to walk into the worst, worst moment in somebody's life. Anyone who's ever lost anyone knows what it feels like in the days and weeks afterward to have lost that person. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine having somebody with a notebook you've never met before walk in and start asking questions. It's awkward on both sides. But you do your best to put the family at ease. To li- a lot of time, you, you, don't, you may not spend a lot of time initially asking questions. You're listening. Right. And then you kind of try and guide the conversation to, we do have these questions. Mm -hmm. And to get them respectfully ask those questions and get them to just tell you more about what was this person like in school? What was this person like at home? Were they close to any of their siblings or friends? Did they play sports? Mm -hmm. Why why this sport, not that sport? Mm -hmm. Did they have tattoos? Oh, what did the tattoos mean? You're trying to get little details about your life that may tell the readers something about this person. Um, when I mentioned Jaden Bird a few minutes ago, that family was willing to talk about not only Jaden and how he would hide his tattoos from his grandmother because he was 19 and one of his grandmothers did tattoos, but also <laughs> the neighborhoods they live in and some of the issues in those neighborhoods that lead to these sorts of things. Right. Um, 
it's impossible to define everything that led up to a shooting like that, but they were willing to talk about, okay, yeah, he wasn't perfect, and this neighborhood has these issues, which is also stories we're going to follow up on it right. uh, down the line. Well, and I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with uh, some of the issues that geographic areas of our city have, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Would you say that those are unique to St. Louis, or are they fairly universal in urban areas? Universal in urban areas. Okay. Every city has neighborhoods that have those issues. Like I said, I, I grew up in New Orleans and parts of that city you were just there visiting and probably didn't go to some of these neighborhoods. <laughs> but some of those neighborhoods are really, really poor mm-hmm. and really underserved by the city. Um, when I was there, there were these things dated back to the 19 19- late 30s and early 40s housing projects right which eventually became the place where the city shuttled its poor and it they based they became high crime areas right and that's uh, not unique to well, that's not unique to new orleans it's not unique to st louis right. it's not unique to new york it's everywhere that, that you do that yeah you have some of these issues that kind of disinvestment and fracturing yeah. i mean we pu- published a story a couple of weeks ago about the declining population uh based on the estimates from the 2021 census and the photos that we ran with the story depicted um a range of different homes and neighborhoods that were in various states of dilapidation uh and i think that i understood you know readers reached out and said well why use this photo why not a photo of the arch or something that could capture st louis maybe more broadly but i think it's our job and kind of get to get to what you're saying to shine a light on that disinvestment to shine a light and say you know there are a lot of neighborhoods that have been invested in in the city uh both by um you know, private residential investment, but also by the city itself, you know, held mm-hmm. up as uh, this is a great neighborhood to live in, to visit um, when you come in town if you're a tourist. There are a lot of neighborhoods that have not. And to ignore that and to say we only want to focus on the positive is a part of pe- perpetuating that problem. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not saying, and I don't want to imply that just because folks are poor, they're going to commit crimes. Is just... This is where the overlap is. Yeah. You know, some a lot of these things happen in underserved neighborhoods. City neighborhoods the city has not invested in, that people are not investing in for whatever reason. Um you know, it and it's that's kinda universal to, to metropolitan areas everywhere. Is there a story that you have let the coverage on since you've been here that really struck a nerve for you? Jaden Bird's murder. Right. Nineteen years old, former high school basketball player. Uh, I'm normally not incredibly hands-on with the reporters and uh-huh. how they're reporting and the writing. That one, that one got me. Right. Uh, he was 19 years old, former high school athlete, was taking college classes. There were several elements to that that just that got my attention. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that he was 19, mm-hmm. that he had no record we could find. Mm-hmm can't figure out if this was mistaken identity or what exactly went on right uh the age got me because i have a daughter who's going to be 19 in a few weeks and that's your whole life's ahead of you at 19 yeah and when you have the background this kid had that's a life cut short and that one got my attention because it was a life cut short and there were other details with it that he was live streaming with his mom when it happened Mm -hmm. which is I've seen my share of crime scenes and videos and photos. That's a horrific thing for anyone to see, much less a parent. Right. Yeah. 
how do you how do you decompress from that? How do you compartmentalize it? Do you you know? It takes me about fifteen minutes to drive home every day, and I try and leave all that on that fifteen minute drive on the way home. That's hard. Yeah, it is, uh, and it's not always successful. And right. when I get home, if I still haven't gotten there, there's a you exercise you. In some cases, if need be, just stare out the window for a little while and watch the sun go down. Yeah. Anything to sort of put a little distance between you and and that experience you had dealing with that story. Um, And it's usually successful. There are very few that stay with me for any length of time that will... They generally don't give me nightmares. There's only two that ever have, and none of them have been here. (laughs) Liz and I were talking the other week about uh, stories that we hate reading or don't even read like for me it's children who are, are left in cars mm-hmm. um i hate those stories i can't read those stories because they hit on some personal level oddly i've never done this i've never um you know had this happen to me thank god but it's one of those things that i read and i um i can't get out of my head and so yeah like you were saying you just kind of take that time on your drive home or you go and do something completely different and it's it's interesting how people who editors for example who are so immersed in the news even have to take breaks from it yeah yeah uh i definitely am looking forward to my vacation in five weeks so i can (laughs) i can take a break from from some of this uh but no you 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 have to find a way to like i said leave it on drive home Mm -hmm. or find a way to just relax when you get home because if not it'll drive you crazy it, it really will and you don't you will not last long in this business if you cannot find a way to separate i i edited i wrote about it, i saw this horrible photo or video of something today and the fact that you have a life outside of here right uh i have witnessed two executions um fortunately there were long drives home after both and i was on the, on the drive home able to just use that to decompress and and kind of separate that's work and that's something i did for work and i Mm -hmm. i had i had to watch this same thing when i used to cover trials we'd see crime scene photos right and i there are some things you see in crime scene photos you never ever imagined you'd see but you find a way at the end of the day to say okay that's work that stays there and you go home and you exercise you relax you enjoy your family you throw yourself into television or a book or something completely divorced from what it is you spent your day doing. Right, yeah. And it's not always easy, but you find a way to do it because sanity is important. (laughs) Well, I think, too, you know, reading, for instance, again, the the story about the Harvey Cousins from this weekend, Val had a detail in that story that Paris, the 12-year-old, in speaking with Paris's mother, that her daughter would ask her to bring her like a bag of chips from the next room or she'd call her mom into her bedroom and be like, mom, can you come here? She'd come to her, you know, doorway and say, what do you need? And Paris would say, can you bring me a bag of chips? And that's just so like preteen teenager behavior to me. I remember doing the same thing. You see yourself, you know, in these people and that has to also, I would imagine a piece of, of how you get past it is knowing that you've been able to tell someone's story. You've been able to give family a small measure if that's possible um uh of some sort of um you know step in the grieving process to remember who these people were um who these children in that case were beyond what 
how they died. Yeah, yeah. And, and to tell their story so that, you know, again, we're not the, the worst thing we've ever done. And the day someone dies shouldn't be how they're remembered. It should be how they lived. Mm-hmm. So you're able to give people that. That's very powerful. And it's very necessary to keep us connected to, again, in, we were, live in a city with other people. You know, we're all one community. <laughs> we need to see ourselves in each other. I think, you know, we're farther maybe in that space than we've been in some decades. So the work you and your team do does that. I hope so, and that's that's one of the things I've, I've been talking to the team about is we want to humanize a lot of what happens here. Because, yeah, we do live in a city, and it's easy to walk by somebody and not think twice about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you may see somebody once in your life, and you happen to walk by them. But we live in a city. Things like this happen. Crime takes place. That may be the person we're writing about in two days. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly that person you pass by at Walmart they're on the front page of the paper and you realize that was a human being and we do want to humanize what happens around us because it's very very easy to get jaded to and just think of it's another murder it's not just another murder that was somebody's son cousin brother father mother whoever mm-hmm. and and again uh, uh, back to the larger canvas here is part of the story of the city these people are part of this. You live here. You interact here. You shop here. Walk around. You get coffee here. You're part of the story of the city. And if we can tell, we can't tell all the stories of all the people we have We have to write about. It's just we don't have the team to do it. We don't have the time to do it. And not everybody's willing to talk. But the ones that are, we can fill those holes in the story of the city of who these people were, that, that they lived. And they lived more, they did more than just exist as a name and a number. To turn a little bit from the victims to some of the institutions that Mm -hmm. come with crime coverage, Um, the police departments in the St. Louis area. Once again, Liz and I return to the overarching theme of this podcast of fragmentation, but there are so many of them and they have such different issues in some, some ways. Some of the issues that they might have are, are very similar. And that's obviously the, been a story, been story several times, but how how are you looking at covering those institutions? We're doing our best to cover as many as we can. Mm-hmm. There, there there are so many municipal municipalities with departments that it's just not physically possible for us to give the kind of coverage we'd love to give to all of these. Right. What we try to do is, in some ways, pick our spots as to part of what we do is accountability for these public institutions, police, courts. We do that by filing a lots of, lots of public records requests, mm-hmm. um, which is not just a journalist thing. Anybody can file them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I say that. Go out and file a public records request. It's, it's a lot of fun sometimes, which you get back. But we file records requests. We do our best to stay in touch with people in those communities so that if there is an issue with a police department or if there is an issue with a police chief, we can start looking into it and find out. Is this a real thing or is it just somebody who's mad they got a ticket? Right. We get a lot of those phone calls and emails, by the way. <laughs> um, but we do our best to stay in touch with people in those communities. And a lot of the things we find out are because people contact us. And when you when somebody contacts you, what are some of the things that you listen for that kind of trigger, oh, this might be a good thing for us to follow up on and write about? Specifics. A general complaint about police is going to be written off by most people is a general complaint just there's no specifics you just you're angry over 
Speeding. Speeding. Or, you know, <laughs> the police had a roadblock up and I didn't know about it. And I, right. you know, I had to wait through specifics. If you had a, if someone had a run-in with a police officer, if, you know, they say they were arrested and wrongfully arrested. Okay, well, bring us some details. Mm-hmm. Things we can start looking at. Things we can see. Is the police officer's story matching up to what you have in your hands, the documents you have in your hands, or the witnesses you say were there? Right. Things we can we can check, fact check, things we can dig into, people we can interview. Anything that gives us a thread to pull, we'll take a look at. Mm-hmm. I can't promise everyone who contacts us is gonna we're gonna do a story on it because not everything pans out into a story and not honestly there are just days where we just don't have the manpower to do it. Um, but we we do look for details. We look for specifics. Anything that any thread that we can grab to say, okay, this might lead us somewhere. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, we we do our best to, to at least review and possibly talk about possible stories when we get we get emails or phone calls. In fact, before I came in here, I was looking at a lawsuit that was filed, trying to figure out is this something we want to write about. <laughs> yeah, I think that brings up an interesting question. You know, a lot of our listeners may not really have an understanding of how stories come together, not just in an editing sense or in a writing sense, but in a sourcing sense. So, you know, what is it, can you think of as maybe some examples, and they can be maybe, you know, farther afield than the current job, where you heard of a credible tip, you maybe, yeah, 99% knew that it was correct, but the sourcing wasn't there. I can give you one from when I worked in Kentucky. I worked for the Associated Press, and one of the beats I had there was public safety, criminal justice, and part of that was covering the state prison system. Um, I got an, a letter from a longtime death row inmate. The guy has been on death row. He's still there, and he'd been there since 1980. Wow. Uh, he wrote me a letter telling me about an inmate who died protesting his medical care. And he had killed himself over his lack of medical care. Inmates will tell you constantly, the food is bad, the medical medical care is bad. Sure. It's two common complaints. But there were cer- certain details in the letter, like, there might be something to this. He mm. had a name. He had a date, which is unusual. So, okay. I wrote him back. And I wrote a couple of other inmates who I'd corresponded with. And... Yeah, I, in the past I've corresponded with inmates and I've blown through more stamps than I know what to do with writing to inmates. <laughs> but I wrote several other inmates and they all also had little pieces of this story. Hmm. And these pieces started to overlap. Right. I'm like, okay, there's something here. I kept pulling at that string, filing records requests. Mm-hmm. And you can't just walk into a prison and say, I want to talk to an inmate. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's right. very tough to get in. So I wrote a lot of letters. Right. And periodically, these guys, when they were out on, out on the prison yard, would call me, collect, which I know my bosses just love to collect calls from the prison. Um, but they all had little pieces of this story that overlapped. And finally, I was able to figure out, okay, this guy didn't kill himself like you would think of someone killing himself. He went on a hunger strike protesting his medical care. Wow. And it turns out that no one at the prison knew, knew what to do with somebody on hunger strike. And the medical staff more or less wrote him off saying he will eat when he's hungry. Yikes. He died. Right. It took a couple of months for him to die, but he died. And there was a big blow up. There was an internal investigation. The doctor was fired. A nurse was fired. But the prison also produced, they had a name for it, but it was a report of what happened. Mm -hmm. I was able to record request that report, which told me the rest of the story. Right. 
combined with the things I was getting from the inmates about the medical care, this report, I was able to tell the story of basically how the medical staff let this man die. Wow. Wow. Because by the time they realized he was in serious trouble, it was too late. Mm-hmm. And it was a big national story when it happened. Uh, that's how we source stories sometimes, though. They were able to come up with enough specifics, and I was able to find enough other sources with overlapping specifics, mm-hmm. that there was something there. And I just kept pulling at a thread, and that story took better part of two, two months, two and a half months to pull together. Not everything is an instant, quick turnaround story sometimes. Sometimes we do pursue these things in the background while we're doing our, our daily work and, and the daily stories we have to tell. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I think for readers and listeners, it's good to, to have an understanding of, you know, in stories like that, you probably want to run with it right away. That's the instinct for a reporter. You know, you want to be the first out there. You want to be able to tell it the right way, the best way. But sometimes you need the time and you need the additional sourcing to get there. Yeah, reporters aren't always known for their patience. <laughs> Sometimes we ha- we have to tell ourselves, "No, I'm I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going on this, and I'm going to wait and wait till I get this next records request back, or wait till this phone call comes back." It's not always easy to do, but it's necessary because not only do we want a good story, we want the good story to be correct. Mm-hmm. More than anything else, we want to be right. Uh, if we're wrong, it horrifies us, but we also do our best to. to Get a correction out, mm-hmm. make it right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, journalists are people. We do. We're, make we're mistakes. human. We we do make mistakes, and we oh, no one beats us up more than ourselves when we make a mistake. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's what I'll never forget is every mistake I've ever made that's cataloged perfectly in my mind, and I can recall it. You know, there, there's quite a few I can recall that you know that I've made. It's like okay, I, I can run them down if I have to. <laughs> Uh, more importantly, I can tell you how they came about, yeah, which, is, yeah, which is, is an important part of figuring out what went wrong. That is but, an important part of figuring out. But yeah, yeah. We, we stories aren't always instant, easy things to get. It requires some patience sometimes. It requires being nervy, ner- you know, nervy enough to walk up to somebody and ask them a question that you never thought you'd ask somebody. It's part of what we do is accountability. A mm-hmm. big part of what we do is accountability. Um, it's been shown that in places that don't have local newspapers, misconduct goes up and yeah. participation in democracy goes down. Yeah. The, the less they want you to know it, the more you probably should. Yeah. That, that's something I've learned over the years in dealing with some public officials is that if they're, tra- if they're trying to keep you from writing about it, it's a good bet you should be writing about it. It's a good yeah, bet like the, the biggest red flag ever is like yeah. <laughs> no comment. Why, why aren't you answering this? Why are you withholding this record that clearly I have a right to? Or why aren't you talking about this? There, there's a reason you're not talking about it. What's yeah. that reason? And part of our job is to find out that reason. <laughs> well, and again, because there's no reason politicians or police, why would they? They really have no reason to cooperate, even if they have nothing to hide, because... Isn't it easier to say nothing than to say anything? And that's kind of our job to step in and know the difference. Yes. Um, to say there's, they have no reason to cooperate, there's actually a lot of reasons to cooperate with us. Yeah, well, yes, but they don't, we they don't always see it that way. <laughs> I agree. That, that's the way I see it. But they, don't, they don't always agree with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess just to, again, to remind listeners and readers, you know, the work that we do is to ask those questions, yes. to probe. And regardless of the, the situation, maybe there's nothing there, maybe there is something. Um, that's not information that's going to be, you know, put on a platter for us. We're going out and asking those questions. We have to go get it. That's why we file records requests. That's why we were talking, I was talking about this with a reporter earlier um, in a case. She's going out to a family's home tomorrow. Talk about someone who died. Mm-hmm. They're not going to come to us. 
police aren't going to come to us. If somebody is misspending public money, they're certainly not going to come to us and say, oh, look what I did. We have to ask those questions because people need to know what a more informed citizenry is going to be a better educated one, a more more, one more anxious and likely to participate in what's happening around them. Uh, Asking the hard questions of public officials is a very big part of what we do, be it the police, the mayor, prosecutor why did you choose not to charge this guy Mm -hmm. or why did you charge him with manslaughter rather than murder and sort of try and get beyond just the talking points of well we want where the evidence took us okay well what evidence did you have would be the next question yeah Mm -hmm. and to show to shine a light on how these things work because most people's interaction with the criminal justice system god bless them is watching law and order or csi yeah which <laughs> getting a speeding like ticket I admit I like <laughs> law and order I watch it but it's not it's not always reality and you have to be able to ask those questions to kind of peel back that layer of okay why was this decision made or where did this money go or again with with crime victims or people who are in prison how did you get here mm-hmm. yeah uh, most of the stories aren't going to come to us. We have to go out and ask the questions and ask sometimes the uncomfortable questions to get the answers so people understand and can read and see what, what exactly is happening around them and why it's happening around them. We can't always answer those questions. We're not always going to get those answers, but we can put enough information out there. And that's what we do is we gather the information and we put it out there. We tell stories. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you make of it what you will, but hopefully you, when you see one of our stories about misconduct or a homicide victim you come away understanding a little more about the place you live and how it works and what has happened do you hear a lot from readers and what's one of the questions that you seem to to get a lot from people who read our coverage we do get some questions from readers uh sometimes it's just as simple as how did you get that story right that's the one thing they want how did you get that or how did you hear about that or how did you know about that Mm -hmm. well we know about these things because we're part of the community. We talk to people. Uh, yeah, we live here. We live here. I mean, the places you all go, we go. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably walk by a reporter in a bookstore or a coffee shop and not even realize that's what they do. But we live here. We talk to people. We do file record requests when we want a document. Mm-hmm. We actually seek out answers. We seek out stories. Um that's one of the great misconceptions I've learned over the years about news is people think we know things just because we work in news. Well, we know things because people tell us things. People contact the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like with the crime victims, we get the names from the police. They identify the crime victim. And we reach out to the family. Mm-hmm. This just doesn't magically appear on our desk of, oh, look, a story. <laughs> we actually have to make the decision of this is interesting. We want to know more. Mm-hmm. And we get that by people telling us things or us asking people things. It's it's not an easy process. It's not a simple process, but it's one we make work. Because we we talk to people. We listen to your your answers. We may ask questions and say there'll be uncomfortable questions at times, but we're asking these questions and we're asking for these records because we want to know. And and we want to know. And we figure if we want to know it, chances are you do too. So, Brett, just to kind of wrap up, is there anything else that – you would want to chat about or that we haven't covered yet today probably a lot of things kind right of, <laughs> kind of that golden journalism question of what have what do you think is important for our readers to know we're asking a lot of the same questions you all are about what's happening around you 
The difference is we have a large format in which to print our answers. <laughs> but we're asking the same questions. We live here. We're your neighbors and mm-hmm. the people you see in the grocery store. Um, we're not the elite. We're not anything special. We're just curious people, in our cases, curious people with notebooks and cameras. And we have a way to ask questions and let you all know what the answers are that we find. And if you've got a thought on something we should be covering, reach out to us. And readers and listeners, I guess, can do that very easily at stltoday.com slash news tips. News tips. And those go to the digital team. So Beth and I are included on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we always forward along depending on who the editor is. Again, if it's something more on the crime or police beat, we're going to forward it to Brett. Uh, If it focuses on another area of our coverage, we're going to forward it to that editor. I I do definitely get the tips from them and we do follow them up. (laughs) But yeah, reach out to us because like I said, we're your neighbors and you know, you, you see us and probably don't even realize who we are, which yeah. is not a bad thing for print journalists. <laughs> but yeah, we, we'll follow we'll follow up as best we can, and you know, who knows? It may turn into a story. Thank you so much for for joining us this week. Glad yeah. to have done it. Thank y'all for having me. Yeah, thank you, Brett. We're gonna have to check in again. Hopefully, it won't take six months. The next time. <laughs> Anytime. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye.